It's the Popcorn Playbook, a critical take on the wide world of sports movies. Welcome to the first episode of the Popcorn Playbook, a podcast that combines two of my favorite things, sports and movies. There are a lot of sports movies out there. Some are great, some are lousy, and some are worth discussing more. On each episode, I'll take a deep dive into a particular sports movie. It might be a very well-known one, or it might be one that's flown a little more under the radar and that I think deserves a second look. Either way, I'll try to bring something interesting and thought-provoking to that movie, something that hopefully inspires you to go back and rewatch it or maybe see it for the first time. I believe in the Church of Baseball. I've tried all the major religions and most of the minor ones. I've worshipped Buddha, Allah, Brahma, Vishnu, Siva, trees, mushrooms, and Isadora Duncan. When people ask me what my favorite sports movie is, I usually say Bull Durham, the 1988 film starring Kevin Costner and Tim Robbins as teammates on the minor league Durham, North Carolina Bulls, and Susan Sarandon as the baseball guru and love interest for both men. Now, to be honest, I'm not crazy about picking favorites. I don't really have a favorite book or a favorite song because there are just so many to choose from, and it might change on any given day depending on what kind of mood I'm in. But if I absolutely have to pick a favorite sports movie, Bull Durham might be the one. Yeah! I love winning, man. I fucking love winning. You hear what I'm saying? It's like better than losing. First of all, it's just terrifically funny and entertaining. So much so that another baseball movie, Major League, which came out the following year, borrowed quite a bit from Bull Durham. The story of a veteran catcher in the twilight of his career who helps nurture a young pitching prospect with a great fastball but no control, and in the process helps turn around a losing team. Yeah, that all came from Bull Durham. Not to mention that Pedro Serrano from Major League was not the first baseball movie character to practice voodoo. There was also Jose, the second baseman for the Durham Bulls. Hey, you guys, don't throw me anything. My girlfriend put a curse on my glove. I'll take the hex off the fucking glove. Give me the glove. Well, then you gotta cut the head off a live rooster. Hmm, where else have we heard that? Hey, we got a big problem. Serrano wants some extra power for tonight. He's looking to sacrifice a live chicken. Just for the record, I do like Major League a lot, too. But Bull Durham isn't only a comedy. More than most sports movies, it really gives me a sense of what it must be like to be a professional athlete day in and day out. Not just the fun and glory, but also the frustration, the insecurities, and even the occasional drudgery of it. Baseball may be a religion full of magic, cosmic truth, and the fundamental ontological riddles of our time, but it's also a job. That's Susan Sarandon's character, Annie Savoy, the metaphysical poet of the baseball diamond. And she's right. Just because you get to do what you love for a living doesn't mean you never have a bad day at work or that sometimes you wish you didn't have to go to work at all. There's the famous scene in Bull Durham where some of the players deliberately soak the field with the sprinkler system in order to get a day off. Oh my goodness! (laughs) We got ourselves a natural disaster. It's moments like this that give Bull Durham a different feel from a lot of other sports movies. It's not all about the big game or the big fight or the big anything. A lot of this movie is about the downtime in an athlete's career. 
the off-the-field experiences, the moments between the big games that are no less significant. Listen to Kevin Costner's character, the veteran catcher Crash Davis, as he tells his teammates about a brief stint he had in the major leagues. Yeah, I've been in the majors. You've been in the show, man? Yeah, I was in the show. I was in the show for 21 days once. Wow. <laughs> 21 greatest days of my life. You know, you never handle your luggage in a show. Somebody else carries your bags. It's great. You hit white balls for batting practice. Ballparks are like cathedrals. The hotels all have room service. The women all have long legs and brains. He doesn't mention the hitting a big home run or winning a big game against his team's rival. Obviously, those things are important and are still the ultimate goal for a player, but the movie also highlights the everyday details of playing ball for a living, which gives it a more authentic feel. A lot of this is due to the fact that writer-director Ron Shelton played in the minor leagues himself for a few years and based the screenplay on some of his own experiences. The natural disaster rainout scene, for instance, was something that Shelton and his teammates actually did to give themselves a day off. Although Shelton says it backfired because they wound up with a day off in Amarillo, Texas. And according to him, there was absolutely nothing to do back then in Amarillo, Texas. But Shelton used these types of experiences to focus on the inner lives of the characters rather than on just whether or not the team wins the championship at the end. In fact, he consciously constructed the movie so that it begins after the Durham Bull season has already begun and concludes before the season ends. Here's Shelton. There is no complete season here. And that was a conscious idea because I, I'm pretty much against big game endings uh, in movies because they, they just aren't real. And if there is a big game ending, it has to have either irony or surprise. I am the believer that when the kid in the hospital with polio asks you to hit a home run, you'll probably ground out to second base. I'm sorry, I just don't accept the poetic mythology of hitting the home run so that the crippled kid can walk. In fact, I want to take it in exactly the opposite direction. So we never find out what happens to the team because the film is more interested in the people on the team. It's a bit similar to the first Rocky movie where Rocky loses to Apollo. But unless you're paying really close attention to the ring announcer at the end of the film, you might not even realize he doesn't win. The focus is on the character more than the event. And it's the same thing in Bull Durham. Now, even though I've been praising Bull Durham for its realism, let's be honest, it's also a comedy, and a pretty over-the-top one at times, especially with regards to Tim Robbins' character. The young, hard-throwing rookie pitcher, Ebby Calvin Lelouch. Do you think I need a nickname? I think I need a nickname. When we were talking about this, all the great ones have nicknames like Oil Can, Catfish. What was the one you were... Pokey. Yeah. What do you think of Pokey? Well, he wisely passes on Pokey and eventually earns the nickname Nuke, as in nuclear. And that's what his fastball is. Nuke throws in the upper 90s, which was still pretty rare back in the 1980s. But he lacks control. And when I say he lacks control, that's being kind. Major League's Rick Vaughn has nothing on Nuke Lelouch, who routinely hurls pitches into the stands and sometimes all the way up into the press boxes. Listen to the stat line from Nuke's first game. Walked 18. New league record. 
struck out 18. Another new league record. In addition, he hit the sports writer, the public address announcer, the bull mascot twice. <laughs> also, new league records. His wildness on the mound matches his insouciant, carefree personality. At times, he almost sounds like what might happen if Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High played baseball. So how does it feel to get your first professional win? It feels out there. I'm, it's a major rush. I mean, it doesn't just feel out there. I mean, it feels out there, you know? Um, kind of radical in a kind of tubular way, you know? But most of all, it's, it's out there. From his juvenile vernacular and heavy metal t-shirts to his untamed, mascot-beaning fastballs, Everything about Nuke is over-the-top and outlandish. But does having such a cartoonish character detract from the realism or authenticity of Bull Durham? Well, let's try to answer that by reflecting on a couple of infamous baseball stories that are just as crazy and unbelievable as anything in this film. Let's talk about Sid Finch. In 1985, Sports Illustrated ran an article called The Curious Case of Sid Finch about an unusual pitching prospect in the New York Mets organization. According to the article, Sid Finch was a 28-year-old who grew up in Leicester, England and attended Harvard University in the 1970s. A Renaissance man who spoke several languages, played the French horn, and studied Eastern philosophy, Finch had never played organized baseball until he approached Bob Schaefer, the Mets AAA manager after a game, and introduced himself by saying, I have learned the art of the pitch. And he wasn't kidding. When the Mets granted him a tryout, Finch's fastball was timed at 168 miles per hour. 168 miles per hour. Now, let's try to put that into perspective. Measuring the fastest pitchers of all time is difficult because radar wasn't really introduced to the game until the 1960s, and since then there have also been debates over the proper way to use radar, like at what point during the pitch should the speed be measured, when it leaves the pitcher's hand or when it crosses the plate. So much has changed over the years that it's hard to have an official record for the fastest pitch ever. But the two pitchers who are most often awarded that title are Aroldis Chapman, who was clocked at 105 miles per hour in 2010, and Nolan Ryan, who was estimated at 108 miles per hour in 1974. Now, whichever record you choose to accept, 105 or 108, neither comes anywhere close to Sid Finch's 168. How is that even humanly possible? According to Finch, he learned the secret to velocity in the mountains of Tibet. Now, there's a whole new breed of PEDs for you. Performance-enhancing Dharma. Whatever the explanation, Mel Stottlemyre, the Mets pitching coach, called it the most awesome thing that has ever happened in baseball. Every time that ball comes in, Stottlemyre said, first you hear this smack sound of the ball driving into the pocket of the mitt, and then you hear this little gasp, this aye! The catcher, poor guy, his whole body shaken like an angina's hit it. It's the most piteous thing I've ever heard, short of a trapped rabbit. was a humdinger. If you've never heard of Sid Finch and are wondering what happened with him, well, nothing happened with him because he never existed. Oh, did I mention that this article appeared in the April 1st issue of Sports Illustrated that year? Yeah, it was an April Fool's Day joke. The article was devised and written by George Plimpton, 
the urbane writer and literary editor who wrote a number of books about his own attempts at professional sports, like Paper Lion. The Sid Finch article caused such a sensation that Plimpton would develop it into an entire novel. But not all of Sports Illustrated's readers appreciated the prank. Some got suckered in by the article, only to be crushed when they learned the truth. One angry Mets fan wrote to the magazine, Haven't we Mets fans suffered enough? I submit that the article was cruel and unusual punishment. Couldn't you have let Finch try out for the Yankees or Dodgers? Sid Finch may have only been a piece of fiction, but his legend became real enough that it probably inspired other fictional characters, such as Brendan Fraser's overpowering but eccentric pitcher in the movie The Scout. Yankee Stadium is a different environment than you've ever played in. It's a lot of people. It's not like here. Now, that doesn't bother you? No, the people. No, that's okay. I, I could play in front of a million people. That's all. I don't even see the people. I just see the plate and the glove and the throw and it goes there. And, and maybe also the fast and loose Ebby Calvin Nuclelution Bull Durham. In the film, Annie advises Nuke to model his pitching windup after Dodgers great Fernando Valenzuela, who would look away from home plate right before he released the ball. Nuke takes this mimicry to comical extremes, twisting his head, torso, and hips 180 degrees towards center field, then springing back around and almost falling forward off the mound as he throws the pitch. 96 miles an hour. It looks good, but why is he all twisting up like that? He's using his pride a lie, just like Fernando. In Plimpton's Sid Finch article, one of the players says Finch's windup reminded him of the extraordinary contortions that he remembered of Goofy's pitching in one of Walt Disney's cartoon classics. Now that description seems a lot closer to Nuke's mound antics than anything Valenzuela did. Additionally, we might even see some of Finch's philosophical inclinations come across in Nuke's rigid devotion to his mentors, Crash and Annie. Nuke might start out the movie as a headstrong young know-it-all, but he gradually learns humility and begins absorbing every lesson he can from a player like Crash. Even if that lesson is abstinence. The other day, Crash called a woman's pussy. Um, well, you know how the hair is kind of in a V-shape? Yes, I do. Well, he called it the Bermuda Triangle. He said that a man can get lost in there and never be heard from again. What a nasty thing to say. No, no, no. He didn't, he didn't mean it nasty. He, he, he said that getting lost and, and disappearing from the face of the earth was sometimes a good thing to do, and especially like that. But he also said that there are times for discipline and, and, and self-control, and, and I think this is one of those times. Finch, a practicing Buddhist, was reluctant to commit to baseball, partly because he was concerned that the game's vices might interfere with his quest for nirvana. Maybe a catcher like Crash could have helped him find the peace and discipline he sought. But even Crash would have had his hands full, trying to deal with Steve Dolkowski. Unlike the fictional Sid Finch, Steve Dolkowski was a very real pitcher, but his story is full of just as much mystery. An unassuming 5'11 left-hander, Dolkowski pitched eight years in the minors, mostly with the Baltimore Orioles organization. He never made it to the majors and wound up with a losing record for his career and an ERA well above five. Yet after he retired from baseball in 1965, the sporting news called him a living legend. You see, according to some people, Steve Dolkowski 
was the fastest pitcher of all time. The Orioles Hall of Fame manager Earl Weaver said, No one threw harder. No one Ryan or any of them. Nobody threw harder. Steve could have had years like Koufax. Talent-wise, there's no doubt. Now, because of the inaccuracies we've already talked about when measuring the speed of a pitcher back then, it's impossible to say for sure how fast Dolkowski could throw. Most people agree it was consistently over 100 miles per hour, and some people claim that his fastest pitch might have been upwards of 120 miles per hour. If that's true, we're inching a little closer to Sid Finch territory. So with a heater as impressive as that, how come Dolkowski never made it to the bigs? Well, like Nuke Lelouch, Dolkowski was also wild as hell. There was no telling where a pitch might end up. His fastball was said to have a natural rise to it, which often caused it to soar over the catcher's head, sometimes even up into the stands. He was so wild that some opposing managers ordered their players not to swing at all against him, challenging him to have to throw three strikes. This guy's crazy. Yep. I wouldn't dig in there if I was you. Next one might be at your head. I don't know where it's going to go. Swear to God. But when he did find the strike zone, he could be unhittable. He once struck out 21 batters in a game, and he also walked 21 batters in another game, both of which were league records. Remember Nuke's stat line from his first game with the Bulls? He walked 18. New league record. Struck out 18. Another new league record. Because of his velocity and wildness, stories began circulating baseball about Dolkowski. That he could throw a ball through a wooden fence. That one of his pitches hit the home plate umpire in his face mask and knocked him unconscious for a half hour. That another wild pitch tore off a batter's earlobe. His reputation became so infamous that before one game, a player on the other team went up to Dolkowski's manager and asked, Hey Skip, lefty gonna pitch tonight? If he pitch, I no play. The legend of Dolkowski is so pervasive that when Tom Seaver was asked who he thought was the fastest pitcher ever, Seaver said Dolkowski, even though he admitted he had never actually seen Dolkowski pitch. But by far, the story most associated with Dolkowski was his encounter with the great Ted Williams. It happened sometime during a spring training workout. Dolkowski was warming up while Williams was off to the side of the batting cage, watching curiously. Finally, Williams grabbed a bat and stepped into the box to get a first-hand look at this hard-throwing lefty. The story goes that Dolkowski threw one pitch. Williams didn't swing. After the pitch went by, Williams dropped his bat and stepped out of the cage. Some reporters were around, and so they asked Williams about that pitch. Williams said he never saw it. Now, the thing about Ted Williams and what made him so great was that he had terrific eyesight. He was a fighter pilot in World War II in Korea, and he claimed that he could count the stitches on a baseball as it was being hurled at him. For Ted Williams to say that he couldn't even see Dolkowski's pitch, that might be all we need to know about how fast he was. Now, that's assuming, of course, that all these stories about Dolkowski are true. It's hard to verify most of them, and as far as anybody knows, there is no existing footage of Dolkowski pitching, so it's impossible to see for ourselves, all of which helps make Steve Dolkowski almost as mythical as Sid Finch. The writer Pat Jordan said, 
Inevitably, the stories outgrew the man until it was no longer possible to distinguish fact from fiction. But no matter how exaggerated the stories might have become, the fact still remained that Dolkowski struck out and walked more batters per nine-inning game than any other professional pitcher. Unfortunately, Dolkowski never made it to the majors. He came close in 1963, but a tendon injury right before opening day kept him from making the big league squad. After he retired, he struggled with alcoholism and was flat broke most of his life. Today, at the age of 80, he resides in an assisted living facility in Connecticut, suffering from dementia. Even he can't remember everything about his career anymore. Unlike Steve Dolkowski, Bull Durham's Nuclelouche does overcome his control problems and makes it to the majors. But his battery mate, catcher Crash Davis, doesn't fare as well, released by the Bulls after Nuke gets called up. Despite all his experience, wisdom, and skill, Crash appears fated for the same kind of unsung career as Dolkowski, someone who should have been on the cover of Wheaties boxes but wound up virtually unknown outside of the minor leagues. Was Crash good enough to make the majors? Sure seems like it based on what we see in the film. So what went wrong? Maybe nothing more than bad luck. Baseball is a game of failure, where you're expected to make out more often than you reach base. The greatest hitters in the game still fail two-thirds of the time. With those kinds of odds against you, sometimes a little luck is all the difference. You know what the difference between hitting 250 and 300 is? It's 25 hits. 25 hits and 500 at-bats is 50 points, okay? There's six months in a season. That's about 25 weeks. That means if you get just one extra flare a week, just one, a gork, you get a, a ground ball, you get a, you get a ground ball with eyes, you get a dying quail, just one more dying quail a week, and you're in Yankee Stadium. Crash knows how good a player he is, and he knows he has the drive and the baseball IQ to make it in the majors. But he also seems to know that that isn't enough, that the baseball gods didn't shine down on him the way they did for someone like Nuke. When we first meet Crash in the film, he introduces himself by saying, I'm the player to be named later. In baseball ease, a player to be named later is a phrase used when teams make a trade but can't agree on all the details up front. So one team promises to throw in somebody else somewhere down the line just so they can get the deal done now. In other words, a player to be named later is a player of such little value, of such little consequence, that he's an afterthought. Ron Shelton said that Crash referring to himself as a player to be named later is the key to his character. In Shelton's words, it's a pejorative, but Crash owns it. Whatever it is you love to do, there's probably somebody who can do it better and more easily. As much as it kills him inside, Crash knows that Nuke is the one with the real talent. Fuck. Fuck. Why am I a fuck? Why are you a fuck? Why am I got, a fuck? Because you got talent. I got brains, but you got talent. 
See this right arm? Worth a million bucks a year. All my limbs put together aren't worth seven cents a pound. Ron Shelton said that Crash is partly an archetype of an old Western gunfighter. And in moments like these, we can see the good, the bad, and the ugly of his career all come to the surface. Crash knows what he is and what he isn't and what he'll never be. Pat Jordan wrote that to other minor leaguers, Steve Dolkowski will always symbolize every frustration and elation they have felt because of their God-given talent. Crash has talent, just not enough. Or maybe not enough luck, or maybe not enough who knows what. Who knows what it was that gave Steve Dolkowski a rocket launcher for a left arm, but no way to control it. Who knows what it is that separates the good athletes from the great ones, and the great ones from the Hall of Famers. That's what Bull Durham is about. It's about how on a team of 25 players all aching to get to the show, only one of them at most might make it. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen and wasted sweetness on the desert air. Thomas Gray. Or William Cullen Bryant, I don't know, I get them mixed up. Nuke's story and Crash's story mirror those of Sid Finch and Steve Dolkowski. Two talented athletes, one on the way up, one on the way out. One whose dream is still very much in reach, the other who seems to always be watching it go by through the window of a minor league bus. Bull Durham is a sports movie that isn't about winning or losing the big game at the end of the season. It's about winning or losing something much bigger than that. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Popcorn Playbook. You can find George Plimpton's article, The Curious Case of Sid Finch, online on Sports Illustrated's site and in the essay collection, The Best of Plimpton. For more on Steve Dolkowski, I recommend Pat Jordan's book, The Suitors of Spring, John Eisenberg's From 33rd Street to Camden Yards, and Oral History of the Baltimore Orioles, and the 2016 documentary, Fastball. We'll be back next episode with a football movie about a player whose ego might be writing checks his body can't cash. See you then.